0: Hello, it's Jackie. I'm still at my mom's in upstate New York, and we're still in a series called The Table. In previous episodes, we've talked about like table burning, Jesus challenging women's roles, and addressing our pandemic weariness. Today, well, today we're talking about wine at a wedding. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off the record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women at work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions dealing with real issues and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. It's about 1230 where I am and I'm a little hungry. (laughs) kind of seems funny in light of the fact that we're talking about mealtime. Jesus used mealtime, right, to challenge and disrupt and realign. So what about the wine? Today, we're attending a wedding feast in Cana, where water was turned into wine. In 2005, I I had the privilege of studying in Israel. And while we were there, our our class hiked out to this place where archaeologists believe is ground zero for the biblical Cana. And it was really pretty cool. But I have to tell you the story, the wedding at Cana has always bugged me. Its place, like where it sits in John's gospel, just never made much sense. So follow me just for a moment here. So John chapter 1 starts with this deep theological dive. Let me just read to you the first five five verses, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. It starts like this. In the beginning, now I have to pause there and tell you, That throughout John's gospel, John makes these connections between creation and Genesis where shalom, shalom is the word peace, it's a state of being where all of creation experiences the fullest flourishing, let those words sink in, fullest flourishing in every dimension of life, physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, et cetera, et cetera. So John makes the connection between shalom in the beginning, creation, and the renewal of creation that happens through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So we don't want to miss that connection right there in the very beginning when he says, in the beginning, the word already existed and the word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and darkness never extinguishes it. Like stop right there, right? That's heavy stuff. And when I think about John as an author, as a thinker, he must have been like C.S. Lewis, N.T. Wright, and Richard Rohr all rolled into one. He talks about these deep theological concepts, He continues in chapter one with like saying that Jesus is the word become flesh, that Jesus in his body reveals to us who God is. And then we have all this Old Testament allusion with John the Baptist, like when he says to everyone, hey, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of that, all of that is in chapter one. And then chapter two, there's a wedding at Cana. And then chapter three, we're back to deep, heavy theology with the story of Nicodemus. Nick comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evident that God is with you. And Jesus replied, Well, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? Yeah, we're asking that a lot in John's gospel. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into a mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to the spiritual life. And Nick asks the question, how are these things possible? Can't you see him? This great scholar scratching his head over these deep theological issues. That's in chapter 3. And so when I think about the fact that we... Send new Christians to the Gospel of John first, right? A Christian comes to you, new Christian says, where should I start in the Bible? I started in Genesis, because no one told me, and I thought, well, that's the beginning of the book. Boy, talk about confusing. But more confusing is going to John's Gospel. Why do we send them there? It's deep. What do we say next? Like, hey, when you finish that, go on over to John's Revelation. That'll really be another simple one for you. Okay, so in the middle of it, we have chapter one, deep theology, chapter three, deep theology, and then we have a wedding at Cana. And why is it in that place? And why is this where the first miracle occurs? And why wine into water? And why, when, all, when the very first miracle happens, why does it happen behind the scenes where most of the people present don't even know it occurred, didn't see it, unaware of it's happening? See? See why it's bugged me? It doesn't fit. So if Jesus used events around meals to teach us something, or to do something, then exactly what is he doing here? Water into wine. It's a really good question. First, we need context. we got to understand a bit about the first century Jewish wedding. It actually began a year before the ceremony, where there was a formal engagement. There's a whole bunch to that. We're not going to get into it. There's a formal engagement. This public engagement was binding, like a marriage. Couldn't be broken except by a legal divorce. And then after the formal engagement, the groom returns to the father's house so he can build a house for his future bride. And the future bride remains with her parents, and she prepares for the wedding. And the day of the wedding finally arrives, and the wedding is an all-out village event. As the sun sets, the bridal party awaits with oil lamps ready for the wedding procession. And when evening fully comes, it's time for the groom to leave his father's home and proceed with his party through the village, gathering villagers along the way. The bride and the bridegroom are escorted into this bridal chamber where they'll spend up to about seven days to consummate their marriage. And afterwards, they are escorted in a ceremonial procession to a wedding feast at the groom's house. The festivities, well, they usually began on the third day of the week. Alas, why John opens his story by saying, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And i got to stop us there and remind us that John doesn't want us to miss this connection with our creation story in Genesis. Because in Genesis, on the third day of creation, we hear this phrase, and God saw it, and it was good. We hear that phrase said twice. Yeah, twice. That's why for most of Jewish history, the third day of the week, Tuesday, was considered a doubly good day to get married. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee and Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had all been invited and when the wine was gone Jesus' mother said to him they've got no wine now this wedding feast that could or would last about 7 days that's a long party by the way none of us should be doing that during the pandemic but it's a wedding it's a wedding feast and it's the bridegroom's responsibility to provide all that's necessary for the feast the food and the wine to run short of wine was like a breach in marriage etiquette. So it definitely would have been an embarrassment. The family is going to experience shame from all of the villagers that are attending. And just knowing that, I used to think, oh, I get it. Like, Jesus' first miracle was done to keep a man from being ashamed on his wedding day. Isn't that nice? But you and I both know it's always much more than that. Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not come yet. By the way, he says this twice to Jesus' his mom, right? This woman he calls her. It's not a derogatory term. When he was on the cross about to die, he turned to his mother and he said these words, Woman, here is your son. He's pointing to probably John, the disciple. And he says to John, the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, his disciple, John, took her, Jesus' mother, into his home. I think the term is really one of distance. It's kind of like he's reminding his mother, hey, let's not forget, I'm not just your son. What we know is he did what his mother told him to do. The story tells him tells us that he took six stone water jugs holding about 20 to 30 gallons of water and he turned them into wine. That's equivalent to about 150 gallons of wine or we could say like 700 to 1,000 bottles of wine. And we know from the passage that this isn't the cheap stuff. This is the good stuff. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and the scripture says he didn't even realize where it came from. So I want you to think about that. Most of the people present hadn't a clue that a miracle had just happened. The master of the banquet said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. The whole village are enjoying that finest of wine, and they're clueless as to what had just taken place. Think about that. What are they doing right now at the wedding? Well, you and I know they're at least eating and drinking and dancing, doing the stuff you do at a wedding. And missing it. And that makes me wonder, how many times has that been true for me too? And is it true now? You know, as I think about this passage, I have to ask myself, with my head down, just getting through this pandemic season, am I missing the -the behind-the-scenes shalom that's occurring? I have to be honest. I think right now, I'm, I'm actually one of those attending the wedding. Just missing it. What about you? How about if we make a deal? Let's decide that this week we'll be looking, looking all over the place, in spaces and places where Jesus is renewing creation, where Shalom is actually in the midst of a pandemic. Jeez, I. I don't know about you, but I could really afford to hear your story, and I think that you could probably afford to hear mine. Wouldn't that be encouraging? If you want to do that, you can just go over to Jackie Always Unplug Facebook group and post it there. I think we probably all could use the reminder that God is still at work, even if we aren't looking, even if we can't see it. Don't you think? Now, right about now, you're asking yourself, Jackie, how is water into wine about the renewal of creation and shalom on earth? And I'm so glad you asked. Because see, in the Old Testament, wine is associated with joy. The prophet Joel said that in the future where the messianic kingdom, right, the future messianic kingdom, when the kingdom of God begins on earth, he said the vats will overflow with new wine. So the first miracle is actually like a perfect first. It implies the kingdom of God has begun. It's at hand. It started that day at the wedding feast with wine. And from that point on, Jesus would spend the rest of his life on earth revealing that truth, what the kingdom of, on earth would look like, like he spoke it and he showed it, didn't he? He healed the sick and gave sight to the blind and raised people from the dead and set the oppressed free. He ate with tax collectors and touched leopards and bleeding women. He forgave and restored and included, and he rebuked. Mm-hmm. Who did he rebuke? mostly religious leaders and evil forces. Jesus, if we want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, look at Jesus. Look at him in scriptures, particularly the the four gospels. Watch him. See what he's doing, who he's doing it with. And then the challenge is by the power of the Spirit to be like him. Just that simple truth should say something about how we, Christ followers, are faring right now when it comes to bringing shalom, full, flourishing, in areas where systemic sin reigns, like racism, and classism, and sexism, and I could go on and on. But that's too convicting, so let's move on. The water to wine, it meant the kingdom of God was at hand that day, at the wedding, when the toast of a good wine began the renewal of creation. The possibility is now there to move back to Shalom, where all of God's creation, all of God's creation, not some, all of God's creation, will fully flourish physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, and on and on. That day at the wedding feast, the vats overflowed. The story ends by saying, after the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, brothers, and disciples. And I was thinking about that, particularly Mary, and her walk from Cana to Capernaum, did she ponder the miracle? Did she think back to what she spewed out in front of Elizabeth, you know, the Magnificat, where she said that God would bring down princes from their thrones, like Caesar, who had a chokehold on her, and the land, and her people? And how did she hold on to that hope of that miracle? You know, water to wine? How did she hold on to that when it didn't quite look like she expected? Like, Later, when people called Jesus, her son, crazy, or when his brothers teased and doubted him, or when she came to see Jesus and he denied her as mother, that's a painful one. But not as painful as watching her son suffer on the cross. And it makes me wonder how many times did she have to realign her own expectations, her own definitions of how or when or what the kingdom on earth would look like in the here and now. And I know for me, I need to check myself. I have to confess, I have expectations of Jesus, of how his kingdom ought to live. Look, now, don't you? I mean, like I have expectations, sexism and racism. Shouldn't Shalom be here in those areas by now? Ever feel like that? Maybe for you it's different. Maybe it's your daughter who's in such physical pain and you thought by now it should or you've been trying to conceive, and you thought by now it should. Or you have black sons, and you thought by now it should. Or your finances or job, you thought by now it should. Yeah, I have expectations. You have expectations of what the kingdom of God on earth is supposed to look like. And I think Mary did too. And through it all, when it didn't look like she thought it would or should she held onto the hope of that first miracle water into wine but i would be remiss if i didn't also speak to the marriage metaphor that is oozing all over this story see throughout scripture god used the metaphor of marriage to depict his relationship with his people first the hebrews then the nation of israel the church you and me and in the new testament the body of believers that would be you and me, are called the bride of Christ. I've always wondered, what do men do when they have to say that? I'm the bride of Christ. Kind of an awkward thing, isn't it? But then I remember, ah, it's a metaphor. So I think everybody can relax. See, in the Old Testament, we have these covidential vows being made over and over over again by God to his people. We see it in Genesis 15, Genesis 17. In Isaiah 54, 4 through 5, God says, fear not for you will not be ashamed, for your maker is your husband. Ezekiel 16, 8, he says, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, behold, you were at a young, the age for love, and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. And again, I mentioned in the New Testament, right, we see the bride of Christ mentioned in Ephesians and Revelation. So this marriage motif, it's all over Scripture. And so it's, and so is our being unfaithful. (laughs) Yeah, so is our being unfaithful in that marriage. I don't need to go into all the scriptures. We could just read the book of Hosea. It's one example. And there we're described as an unfaithful harlot. But what I know is regardless of how unfaithful we've been or are or will be, over and over again, scripture reminds us that God is Is always faithful. He will do whatever it takes, in fact, to marry, stay married, and remarry his bride. Just listen to God speak through the prophet Jeremiah. The people have strayed, and God says what He's going to do in the future to provide a way back into this marriage. It's in 31 31 through 34. He says this The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke the covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. So he says there's a day coming where he's going to make another covenant, a vow with his people that is so secure that our, our relationship with him, no matter what we do, he's sticking. He's still the husband, the faithful husband. And then here's Jesus. This first miracle happens where? At a wedding. And who's supposed to provide for the wedding? The wine at the wedding? The, the bridegroom, right? Right who provides the wine here? Jesus. Later in John chapter three, after the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, there's a debate in, with John's disciples. And John reminds them, I'm not the Messiah. And then he tells his disciples that Jesus is the bridegroom. He calls Jesus the bridegroom. And he says, hey, I am merely the friend of the bridegroom. So right after chapter two, Jesus is called the bridegroom. And I don't have time, but if we did, we could look at what Jesus said in John chapter 14 about going to prepare a place for us. He's alluding to that idea that there's an engagement, right? And then the son goes back to the father's house to build a place. And then he comes back and gets his bride. Yeah, that's all wrapped up in John chapter 14. And then the fact that he said wine was his blood when he instituted the Eucharist, right? This drinking of wine, well, we can't even go into how the engagement is proposed, but it has something to do with drinking of wine, consummating the marriage. That's all marriage language. But for now, I just want to talk to those of you listening who need to hear that Jesus is your bridegroom. You, you have longed to be chosen and wanted and desired. And by the way, we Christians, we speak of desire as if it's some dirty, sinful thing but I I hope you realize there are God-ordered desires. You've longed to be desired, to be wanted, to be chosen, to be known completely and still wanted. And for a variety of reasons, you've not had that. By a parent, a partner, or a friend. And that is extremely painful. I know. I've spoken with many of you about it. What I see here is Jesus tapping, tapping you ever so slightly for a dance at the wedding. He's chosen you. He likes you. He's there for you faithfully, not walking out just because you gained a few pounds or struggle with depression or menopause like me. Nah, this guy, he's sticking no matter what. And he sees you. He sees you in those vulnerable moments, spaces, and places, and once again slightly taps on your shoulder and says, I'm here for you. See, we thought the first miracle was just Jesus being a nice guy so that this guy at the wedding wouldn't be shamed by the villagers. But hmm, I think it's way more than that. So can I suggest that tonight when you sit down to dinner, you pour yourself a glass of wine, if that works for you, Maybe you can substitute like um, grape juice. I know that works for many of you. The point is, the metaphor, a glass of wine. And ponder the thought that water to wine means the renewal of shalom, a slight tap on the shoulder, an invitation to dance with Jesus. And why not share this episode with a friend and then have a Zoom call over that wine and share what you think with each other. We need some bonding right now. By the way, over the rest of August, I'm going to be podcasting every other week. I'll be really honest. The reason why? I've got books to read, seven of them, that I need to get knocked out in the next two weeks, and authors that wrote those books that I want to interview for our series in September. So right now, for this week, I want to thank you for listening and sharing and subscribing over these past several months and ask you to keep doing so. Because there are women out there trapped by teachings in their church, And Jesus is allowing us through these podcasts to reach them and help them be released, reshape their view of what it means to be a woman who loves Jesus. So I'll be back with you August 19th. And until then, I want to leave you with the wise words of King Solomon. And here's what he said. There is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to to find satisfaction in work. I realize that these pleasures are from the hand of God. I think what Solomon is trying to say is be sure to pull up to the table. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.